Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hello and welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. I'm Gory Bose-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshback's Wordsworth Books, has a bumper bag of autumn books. Beverly Rose Muller finds Jan Martel's The High Mountains of Portugal a marvellous but challenging read and Philippa Todras was disappointed in many ways by the telling of an important story in Letters of Stone by Stephen Robbins. Cindy Moritz goes Inside the O'Brien's, the new novel by still Alice author Lisa Genova, which promises to do for Huntington's disease what still Alice did for Alzheimer's. Peter Soule pens a pen of praise to The Sword and the Pen, Six Decades on the Political Frontier by Alistair Sparks. Alexander Fuller's marriage takes her from the beautiful yet brutal Zambezi to the mountains and relative suburban existence of Wyoming. Vanessa Levenstein reviews Fuller's memoir, Leaving Before the Rains Come. Vanessa then takes us from Wyoming to Mexico in John Irving's Avenue of Mysteries, a novel about how both fate and memories shape our lives. And finally, something for the younger generation to nibble on, Kathy Cassidy's fortune cookie, The Chocolate Box Boy. Melvin Minar unearths buried treasure in SPQR. Gosh, can I remember what that is? Yes, I can. Sonatus Populus Quae. Romanus, I think, A History of Ancient Rome by luminary historian Mary Beard. Finally, Anne Donald, director of the Franchuk Literary Festival, gives us the lowdown on some Franchuk Literary Festival highlights this weekend. Do remember there's also the Jewish Literary Festival on May 22nd at the Gitlin Library. Do stay tuned for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200-rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, a bumper bag of Wordsworth Books there. Hi, Gory, and hello, listeners. Well, some fascinating books I've got in front of me today that have come into the shop. And I'm going to start with a very local book, a very Cape Town book. It's by Don Pinnock, who is a South African I would say he's virtually a a local author, although he was born in the Eastern Cape. He's written a book called Gang Town, and this is his... He's spent many, many years researching gangs. He is probably, in South African terms, the absolute expert in the gangs of Cape Town. And he is the one person that you can trust that his information is correct. Apart from that, he is a masterful writer. He's written for Getaway magazine. He was editor there. He's written lots of articles. So the book is really fascinating. Good, good reading. And he delves deeply into the problem. He knows exactly what he's talking about. And as he says in the preface here, Cape Town is two cities. One is beautiful beyond imagining, known since its beginning as the fairest cape in the world. Here tourists come to lounge on beaches, scale misty peaks, and dine in fine restaurants. The other is one of the most dangerous cities in the world, where police need bulletproof vests and sometimes army backup. Here gangs of young men rule the night with heavy-caliber handguns, dispensing heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, 
and fear, and money, of course. A fascinating book, wonderful, well worth reading, and it is 225 Rand. Should be on the top of your to read list. And another one that should be also on the top of your to read list is a book called Continental Shift A Journey into Africa's Changing Fortunes. This is by Kevin Bloom and Richard Poplack. Richard Poplack writes those tongue-in-cheek columns in the Daily Maverick. I know his stuff well. And he's not the sort of person that you would think would be writing a serious book like this. But it is absolutely fascinating. It's a story of traveling through Africa, through various countries in Africa. As he says here, Africa is failing. Africa is succeeding. Africa is betraying its citizens. Africa is a place of starvation, corruption, disease. The economies are soaring faster than any on earth. Africa is squandering its resources. Africa is a roadmap for global development. Africa is turbulent. Africa is stabilizing. Africa is the future. It is fascinating stuff. They write absolutely beautifully, and they take you into places you're never going to get to. It's a travel through Africa through the eyes of some very, very experienced, really good journalists, and that is 265 Rand. Also South African, Alistair Sparks. You can't get much more South African than him. He's written a biography of his life. Um, I think everyone's read his columns in the various newspapers. He writes brilliantly, incisive political thought. Uh, He gets right to the nub of the problem and cracks it on the head and tells you exactly how things are doing, what's happening, where things are at. And this is his fascinating life in journalism, his early life, how he was brought up. Anyone who knows Alistair Sparks was interested in him, this is a book for you. Uh, It's published by Jonathan Ball. It's 300 Rand, and it's called The Sword and the Pen, Six Decades on the Political Frontier. Then a book I think that's quite relevant to all of us. It's called How Not to Die by Michael Greger. It's how to eat so that you don't kill yourself. How to discover the foods that are proven to prevent and reverse diseases and how they affect you, what you should eat, how you should eat it, and it's quite fascinating. I mean, we all know that you shouldn't really be eating sugar and all that sort of stuff. This takes it to the next level. The top causes of premature death, heart disease, cancers, diabetes, and he explains how nutritional and lifestyle interventions can sometimes trump prescription pills. If you have prostate cancer in your family, put down that glass of milk and add flaxseed to your diet. High blood pressure, hibiscus tea can work better than leading hypertensive drugs without the side effects. So this is fascinating stuff. Anyone who's interested in that, this is your book. How Not to Die by Michael Gregor, and it's 410 Rand. And then the last book, I've got a novel here called The Other Mrs. Walker. It's one of my favorites of the year. Mary Paulson Ellis, and it's about a woman who dies alone in her flat, and in the flat, some various things in a small cardboard box. This is in Edinburgh. The old woman has taken her last breath, and she's surrounded by a few objects she has accrued over a lifetime. A photograph, a dress, a Brazil nut, with the Ten Commandments etched on a shell. And Margaret Penny escapes, and comes and decides to spend her life tracking down the relatives of these sort of people and how they collected the stuff, 
what they are, what their lives were, and she discovers some amazing things. It's beautifully written. It's one of those books that really gets you. It's quite a weepy. It's called The Other Mrs. Walker, Mary Paulson Ellis, and anyone who likes good modern fiction, it's for you. It's 310 rand. Well, thanks. I've over-allocated my time. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers. Happy reading. Over-allocated his time. Andrew mentioned the Alistair Sparks book, and we have a lovely review of it by Peter Soule later on in the programme. Beverly Ross Muller, Jan Martel's The High Mountains of Portugal. Jan Martel has produced another extraordinary, imaginative, challenging novel that is in some ways, I think, even better than his best-selling The Life of Pi. The High Mountains of Portugal is a deeply disturbing and yet enchanting novel, tender, painful, even redemptive. But this high praise does come with a warning. The book is divided into three parts, and it will take some perseverance to reach the rich, rewarding conclusion, one far more satisfying, I thought, than The Life of Pi. The book is written in three loosely connected parts, each separated by a span of time, and yet linked by characters who have experienced profound love and also deep, dreadful loss. The light motif is, once again, as was the tiger in pie, an animal. Here it is a chimpanzee, our closest cousin on the evolutionary scale. It is no coincidence that the book begins with a somewhat puzzling quest of Tomash, a curator who discovers a diary written in the 17th century by Father Ulysses, a pitiful account of slavery and an act of penance this priest undertook to make and take a crucifix of unusual configuration back to the high mountains of Portugal. Tomash, who is struggling with the death of his beloved mistress and young son, determines to search for this mystical icon. He battles with new technology. A recalcitrant and gear-grinding Ernie Renner, it's the beginning of the 20th century, by the way, on ruts rather than roads. And despite his well-meaning enterprise, he is culpable of a great tragedy that will dominate the second section of this book. He does, however, find the astonishing crucifix on which is carved a chimpanzee. Decades later, an elderly woman brings the corpse of her beloved husband to the local pathologist for an autopsy. She is a woman of passionate conviction and curiosity, launching great stretches of monologue, equating a passion for Agatha Christie novels with a passion of Christ. It is a powerful, persuasive, and intriguing passage in this novel. The autopsy has a purpose, one that you will have to find out. Many have found the final section the most pleasing. A Canadian veteran politician, widowed and lonely, retires to his ancestral village in the high mountains of Portugal with a chimpanzee he has encountered, caged for experimentation. On an impulse, he sees the piteousness of this trapped, intelligent creature and devotes the remainder of his life to his safekeeping. The generous-hearted, phlegmatic Portuguese villagers become accustomed to the returning foreigner and his exotic companion that swings from tiled rooftops and becomes one of the community, even sipping cappuccino in the local taverna. 
the motif of the chimpanzee is no more or less probable than the tiger in pie. But in this novel, I think it achieves greater poignancy. It recalls Karen Joy Fowler's We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, the Booker-nominated novel of children growing up in a tragic experiment with a chimpanzee sibling. Whether you see the rich creature as a religious or spiritual symbol, or a secular parable about the way in which we treat each other, as well as those creatures with which we share the world, is left to the reader. Either way, this book is pursued to the end, leaves a bruise, a conflict of emotions, and a touching redemptive resolution that I find infinitely pleasing, in that it is not prescriptive. I think the book is spectacularly good, a colossal feat of imagination and a feast for the mind. My hope is that many will agree. And here's our competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Now, this weekend is the long-lived, lively, much-loved literary festival. Is it the Ho-Hook Literary Festival? Is it the French Hook? Literary Festival. We're waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. Letters of Stone by Stephen Robbins is a book with an important story, but the telling of the story disappointed me in many ways. Stephen Robbins, who is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at the University of Stellenbosch, tries to reclaim his family's history. An old postcard-sized photograph of three unknown women was ever present in his parents' home when growing up in Port Elizabeth in the 60s and 70s. The picture, taken in Berlin in 1937, which Robin says haunted his youth, is in fact of his father's mother and his two sisters who perished in the Holocaust. But these three people were never spoken of. His father never spoke about the fate of his family, whom he had left behind in Germany, when emigrated to South Africa in the 1930s after Hitler's rise to power. As part of his journey to retrieve that history, Robbins visited Auschwitz, and I quote, I used my video camera, tightly strapped to my forehead, to shield myself from confronting the full horror of it. The visit taught me one thing about myself. Whenever possible, I tried to look away from the abyss, for fear of turning into stone. Unquote. And that protective mechanism, I would suggest, is what gets in the way of Robin's coming to grips with the elephant in the room, that unspoken trauma which was never dealt with. The Rinsky family's story of anxiety, survival, and guilt gets somewhat lost in Robin's convoluted meanderings. By the time the author eventually and fortuitously interviews his father shortly before his death in 1989, Robbins had immersed himself in Holocaust studies and specific research into his family's roots. Yet he does not seem to understand his father's seemingly emotional detachment. He writes, and I quote, I'm not sure how to interpret my father's response to his loss and exile. He did not speak to me about losing his parents, siblings, language, and home. Robin comments that on replaying the recorded interview, he hears his mother making remarks or correcting some things. Yet Robbins never seems to have interviewed his mother to get her insights and her understanding of her husband's sense of loss and his ability to process that trauma. Robbins is oddly detached or blinkered with observations such as, I do not know how my father responded. 
to the protracted strains and ultimate news of his German family's demise. Yet in the next sentence he notes, quote, his health began to deteriorate at that time. From 1939, he suffered from tuberculosis and hypertension, and in 1942, he contracted diabetes. A key factor in coming to a better understanding of the pre-war pressures as Herbert Robbins tried to get his family out of Germany are the letters from Robbins' grandparents and family to his father that came to the author via his cousins after the death of that younger brother, who was his uncle. This cachet of correspondence has been carefully translated by Uta ben Yosef, carefully and sympathetically, who in a sense Robin uses as his intermediary to deflect his gaze. Copious extracts from this correspondence provide meaningful insights into the anxieties and frustrations that ultimately failed to save lives. The quotes are often heartbreaking, but again, Robbins does not appear to find the overarching context and its impact as reflected in these exchanges. There's an in-depth but frustratingly meandering analysis of the racial ideologies of the time, which informed the socio-political context of the period. Robin concludes that when the international community absconds from its moral responsibility, closing its borders to refugees, it is usually those who manage to flee to safety that end up living the rest of their lives with guilt. Editorial guidance would undoubtedly have helped in focusing on the narrative and limiting the lengthy and often confusing detours that could have been better integrated into the story. Some inaccurate matters of fact syntax are inexcusable. Letters of Stone is important in its emphasis on reclaiming one's history and perhaps, even more importantly, contextualising that story to help the reader fully understand the significance in place and time. My reservations are that Stephen Robbins' account is ponderous and inexplicably detached, despite his very passionate, even obsessive journey of discovery. I'm afraid he has indeed looked away from the abyss for fear of turning into stone. And as Philip was saying off-air before he came into the studio, Andrew Marshbanks gave uh, Letters of Stone a glowing review last month. And, of course, all reviews are subjective. Perhaps it'll help us all make up our minds. If we know that now, or now that we know that the author, Stephen Robbins, will be talking at the Jewish Literary Festival on May 22 at the Getlin Library. Cindy Moritz, Inside the O'Briens by Lisa Genova. Inside the O'Briens is the latest novel from the author of the bestseller Still Alice, which was also made into an Academy Award-winning film. Lisa Genova has a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard and therefore writes with authority. In Still Alice, about Alzheimer's, and now in Inside the O'Briens, about Huntington's disease. She combines her scientific knowledge with her talent for storytelling in both, resulting in a human, relatable portrayal of what it means to have and to live with someone who has such diseases. She also throws up ethical and practical dilemmas surrounding genetic testing and whether a life is improved or destroyed by knowing its outcome. Inside the O'Brien starts off as a regular tale about a working-class Irish Catholic family living in the Boston area of America. Joe, husband and father, is a policeman, overworked, probably underpaid, and resentful of spending too little time with his family. His wife, Rosie, is doting, religious, and patient, having started their family at a young age. They now have four grown children, Patrick, Megan, JJ, and Katie. 
The book opens as 44-year-old Joe experiences something familiar to many. He's misplaced an everyday item and can't leave the house without it. Except for him, it's not his keys. Rather, it's his standard-issue police handgun. He explodes with anger when he realizes he's running late. Then he can't focus on a routine report he has to write about a home invasion and generally feels tired and unfocused. When his policeman friend confides to his own wife that he's worried about Joe, who acted strangely in a drill that day, Rosie urges him to see a doctor just to put their minds at ease. She quizzes him about drinking or whether he's been using drugs, but he assures her he hasn't done either. Well, the alcohol bit he enjoys now and then, but in small measures. His mother was said to have died a drunk, having passed on when Joe was only 12. The shame alone prevents him from going down that road. To placate Rosie, Joe goes to the doctor. Soon he finds himself at a brain specialist doing all sorts of neurological tests, and a few weeks later he's told he has Huntington's disease. To quote from the book's introduction, Huntington's disease is an inherited neurodegenerative disease characterized by progressive loss of voluntary motor control and an increase in involuntary movements. Initial physical symptoms may include a loss of balance, reduced dexterity, falling, career, slurred speech and difficulty swallowing. The disease can be confirmed through genetic testing as it is caused by a single genetic mutation. It is typically diagnosed between ages 35 to 45, proceeding to death in 10 to 20 years. There is no treatment, no cure and no survivors. Each of the four O'Brien children has a 50% chance of carrying the gene. When Joe and Rosie break the news to them over an unusual Sunday supper of takeaway pizza in the living room, emotions run high. Do any of the four want to know? Would it affect their decision to have children of their own? All it takes is a simple blood test to discover whether you have the gene. Patrick, a barman, is an unknown entity. The eldest of the four now adult children, he's also the least reliable of the lot. JJ is the more dependable of the two sons, married at a young age and trying for a baby with his wife. Megan is a professional ballerina with the Boston Ballet, the source of much pride for the entire family, and Katie, the youngest, is a yoga instructor who has a secret lover for much of the story and feels inferior to her more beautiful, more talented and more everything sister. Do any of them want to know if they carry the gene? Would you want to know? Genova explores how, once aware of this death sentence, a person can live with a sense of honor and purpose and suggests that we carry more with us than our DNA, that with love and support and with hope, we can and do triumph over hardship. A nice positive ending. And again, here's our competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. This weekend is the long-lived, lively and much-loved Literary Festival. Is it the Ho-Hook Literary Festival? Is it the French-Hook Literary Festival? We're waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. And Peter Soule, your peon of praise for Alistair Sparks's The Sword and the Pen. The Sword and the Pen, a memoir by Alistair Sparks and published by Jonathan Ball, is a compelling tour de force by a writer who has a marvellous gift for the written word and a talent for the apt turn of phrase. Alistair Sparks was born in 1933 in the Cathcart district of the Eastern Cape on a farm on the banks of the great Kai River named Hotfire. 
not because of the Sparks family name, but because it was where a fierce battle had been fought in one of the rebellions of the previous century. In the preface, Sparks describes how his ancestors had lived there for more than a century, and that the frontier framed his life. This considerable book is about his contribution to the struggle against apartheid, not with the sword of his ancestors, but with a pen covering more than 60 years of unfolding drama from the premiership of D.F. Milan to the presidency of Jacob Zuma. Sparks completed his education at Queen's College, Queenstown, and the following year, at the age of 17, became a reporter on the daily representative in that town. At age 19, during the 1953 general election, the fresh-faced Sparks interviewed Hendrik Vervoet and questioned him on his policy of separate development. Following the election, Sparks sailed for the United Kingdom and spent two years in London. On his return, he spent time on the Chronicle in Bulawayo and the Daily Dispatch in East London, where he met and developed a lifelong friendship with Donald Woods. After his first marriage, he spent a few more years in London before returning to the Rand Daily Mail in Johannesburg, where he was to blossom and hone and develop his writing skills. It was also where he met Lawrence Gandor. A warm personal friendship evolved with a man Sparks describes as a role model and intellectual father and the greatest editor he had ever worked for. Another larger-than-life individual to play a significant role in Sparks' life was Raymond Lowe, who succeeded Gandar as editor of the Mail. Sparks describes him as a go-getter who injected a new energy into the newsroom, which soon became the most dynamic South African journalism has ever seen. In a surprise move in 1975, the Liberal Sparks was appointed editor of the Sunday Express, in succession to the conservative Johnny Johnson, who had carved a niche for himself and the Express on the right. Sparks played it cool, and after a few years, he was appointed editor of the Rond Daily Mail, a promotion many considered Sparks' crowning glory. These were golden days for the Mail and for Sparks, and it was during this period the information scandal, or Muldergate as it became known, and the real cause of the death of Steve Beaker were exposed by the paper. Sparks was the editor from 1977 until 1981, when he was fired. The Sand board had fired Gandar, Lowe, Sparks, and in 1985 they fired the paper, when the Rond Daily Mail was closed. Sparks was not lost to journalism as he became South Africa correspondent for the Washington Post, The Observer, Handelsblatt, and The Economist, continuing to report on the unfolding drama in this country as we move towards the F.W. de Klerk speech in February 1990 and then the negotiations at Cadessa, followed by the elections and inauguration of Nelson Mandela as the first president of a democratic South Africa. And what of today? Sparks believes the ANC in exile debated and attended lectures, but never actually managed anything in the real world. When the moment arrived for them to take over and run a complex modern industrial economy, their entire intellectual universe collapsed, along with the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Empire. If the state is unable to manage our failed parastatals, then it is in no position to lead or coordinate the country's economic activities. This he has called the centralizing of inefficiency in his regular columns, and is, he believes, at the heart of our declining economy. 
But, he concludes, South Africa is a much better place than it was under apartheid. He believes it is not headed towards becoming a failed state and is not another Zimbabwe in the making. He notes the central pillars of our political and economic establishment are intact. The constitution is in place, and as we noted last week, the courts are functioning, as are Parliament and most of the provincial legislatures. The Treasury is in good hands, as is the Reserve Bank. We have a free media, and Sparks believes the most heartening feature of the new South Africa, which will eventually save us from the Zuma decline, is a robust civil society. The Sword and the Pen is an excellent read, and is heartily recommended. Vanessa Levenstein, you've whizzed through three books, a memoir, a novel, and a teen's theme. Leaving Before the Rain Comes by Alexander Fuller is an autobiography of the demise of her marriage to her American husband, Charlie Ross. The book is a sequel to Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. So by the time I picked up Leaving Before the Rain's Come, I felt well acquainted with Fuller's family. For the first half of the book, I had to push myself to keep reading, because I felt I'd read it all before. Fuller's stoic father with his dry sense of humour, her quirky mother, and the Fuller family under the African sky enjoying copious glasses of alcohol. Enter Charlie Ross, the American sober knight in river-rafting armour. Fuller, or Bobo as her family calls her, is 23 years old. Ross is a decade older, seemingly wiser, and ready to whisk her away from a child of both love and happiness, but also abuse and sorrow. Fuller reflects, My marrying him would mean I'd be all right forever. He'd be all right too, and our children would have double doses of all rightness. And so we journey through their 20-year-old marriage. Fuller draws contrasts between Africa and America, her own troubled marriage, and her parents' unshakable bond. Fuller's family, in spite of or because of their foibles, are portrayed in a whimsical romantic light, yet Charlie, who utters, we can't get a divorce now, will go completely broke, is staid and conventional. I wanted Fuller and her husband to get divorced already, because diverse cultural backgrounds, financial woes and stress isn't enough to make their marital estrangement any more interesting than anyone else's. Fortunately, halfway through the book, it picks up with interesting new stories, the birth of Fuller's children, the story about Charlie's namesake, a great-great-uncle who'd been the first victim of kidnapping for ransom in the States, and Charlie's very close call with death. Leaving Before the Rain Comes is honest, has been well received by critics, and may well be a cathartic read for someone who's journeying through a similar marital experience. I do hope her next book isn't another memoir, that she uses her considerable talents, sense of humor, and wonderful use of language to explore another subject, so that we can all enjoy a fresher fuller. Sad, weird, funny, dreamlike, gripping, but at 460 pages, too long. Avenue of Mysteries by John Irving is about a young boy called Juan Diego who grows up in Mexico, literally in a rubbish dump. He lives with his clairvoyant sister Lupe, who speaks in a strangulated voice that only Juan Diego can understand. Their mother works as a cleaner by day and prostitute by night. The rubbish dump is home to stray dogs and discarded books that Juan Diego saves from the bonfires to read. So already, Juan Diego and his sister are different, him because he reads books and Lupe because she reads minds. The bond between the siblings, their closeness, love for each other, sacrifice, and the eventual loss that Juan Diego experiences forms the frame for the novel. The story takes us back and forth as in a dream between the teenage and adult Juan Diego, who is now 54 years old. 
like John Irving, a famous writer. Of course, it is tempting to look for autobiographical threads, as it's always interesting to get inside the mind of a writer writing about a writer, even though Irving has proclaimed he never writes autobiographically. Sometimes during the narrative, it's hard to distinguish between Juan Diego's dreams and reality, and indeed the protagonist himself also has difficulty separating the two. However, what's clearly recognizable are Irving's themes. Unusual sexual relationships, a circus, people that go against the grain, with a transgender woman and ex-priest becoming Diego's surrogate parents, and of course the role of the absent father. The book isn't as easy to read as his others. He does tend to ramble, yet Irving fans will forgive him, as he's so funny and insightful in his authentic portrayal of his character's psyche. And from marital breakups and lonely writers, here's something sweet to end off with. If you have a tween or teenager at home, the last book in Kathy Cassidy's Chocolate Box Girl series is about a boy. The book, Fortune Cookie, The Chocolate Box Boy, ends the series as we meet the sister's mysterious half-brother Jake. I really enjoyed reading it, as I think Cassidy has a knack of empathizing with teen issues without preaching. Blended families come together for the finale under the delicious setting of a chocolate festival. After all, love with a healthy dose of chocolate really does conquer all. Melvin Minar, a great big bumper of a book. It's called SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome, and it's by Mary Beard. Let's face it, 600 pages of detailed ancient history of Rome is not everybody's cup of tea. But Mary Beard, a professor of classics at Cambridge University, is a mean storyteller, or should one say presenter, such as in the typical British television documentary voiceover, she knows the staying power of the bold straight sentence. Just last week, a new BBC TV series, Mary Beard's Ultimate Rome, Empire Without Limit, started in the UK. She's one of those rare academic women, and feminist, by the way, who is a celebrity. She also seems to know everything there is to know about that famous nation, founded more or less by Romulus and Remus, or not, about 753 BCE, and later to become the blueprint of empire and colonialism. Her attraction is the link to the old world with ours, and the parallels she sketches are sometimes delightful. Beard is indeed a well-admired presenter on BBC, and clearly, as is all too evident in this magnum opus, a work of 50 years, she calls it, she knows that the tight, vivid narrative is the key to comprehension. Conjuring up a past that lies so distant in real history, and one that has been drenched in anything from hearsay, legend, and the odd Hollywood blockbuster, to primetime costume television series, requires a particular ability for the right stroke of color, the bon mot, and sustaining the reader's attention with gentle tension. Given the mega amount of information that is woven into this archaeological tapestry, sometimes a mind-boggling melange, one is glad for the simplicity of communication. Just how deep Beard has emerged herself in the existing knowledge, record, and speculation of old Roman history is evident in the detailed further reading lists she supplies, neatly presented as footnotes to each chapter. Not only do these sustain a rather chatty expertise, but act as lure for those of us who still cannot keep away from that remarkable and influential era in Western culture. 
Throughout, Beard is careful as she unspins story after story of leaders, politicians, warriors, emperors, thinkers, and women, as much as they did feature in that patriarchal history, to counter over-enthusiasm for the influence of those ancient Romans on today's life. Also to dampen the kind of intellectual idealism that is sometimes so readily ascribed to the ancient world. Beer tells the big stories of the battles and the personalities that fronted events, but she makes sure that the counter-argument lingers ever so gently beneath what could and has become such useful propaganda, but also the basis of so much of the social structures and debates in today's world. She writes about Julius Caesar's conquests shortly after he first set foot, quote, on the exotic island of Britain. She writes, Caesar laid the foundations for the political geography of modern Europe as well as the slaughtering of up to a million people of the whole region. Close quotes. The echo of that resounds today as we speak. It is that contemporary mirror of Roman history that Beard holds up as enthusiastic motivation for her comprehensive narrative. Relevance kicks in in numerous ways as all the details of her colorful history vividly and theatrically unfolds. And Donald, we're going to chat about your directorship of the Franschhoek Literary Festival, which is May 13, 14, 15, that's Friday, Saturday and Sunday. It's a tremendous program of glorious events, a tremendous website that you have, www.flf.co.za. A tremendous amount of work for you and your small team. <laughs> yes, Gary, it is. We have t- on the program side. We have a team of three who have worked together on this particular program. We sort of start more or less in September and 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 build up towards the end of the year, and then it really hits full steam ahead from January onto the middle of March when the program's launched. And this year we have 190 participants and 130 events, so our biggest festival yet in the 10 years we've been going. And um, a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, trying to get it all to fit together and to make sure everything works and that everybody works together quite well and for the benefit of the audience. And a lot of local and a lot of imported authors? Yes, this year we don't have as many as we've had in previous years. The cost of bringing authors has now got just exorbitant, so we, we, we have to rely on sponsorship wherever we can get it. Um, but we, we look to bring um, authors over from, from um, um, international um, venues or countries just so that they firstly get to know our market and our market gets to, to be exposed to some of the best authors working in the international global market. But we have a lot of, of, of debut authors coming this year who I think are going to bring a new freshness to the festival, both local and international um, debut writers, which is very exciting. And exciting for them as well. And I think, Andrew said there were 130 events? 130 events, yes. Those are the formal events, yeah. Most sold out, a lot sold out. I mean, are there any tickets left? <laughs> <laughs> we sold out at, at the last count about 45 or 46 of the 130, so there's still plenty to see. And we've sold, I think it's, it's around 11,500 tickets at this stage, and there's about another 8,000, I think, that are still available. So more than enough for people who haven't booked. But obviously, if you want to get into a particular event, you need to book as soon as possible, otherwise it could sell out, and then unfortunately you'll have missed out. <laughs> And, Anne, it's the same mix as it has always, uh, you know, so successfully been. It's debates and single talks and different... There's a movie there. What's his name? Omotoza, Aki Omotoza's movie. What sort of events are they? 
Um, we have the, the general panels and debates, as you discussed. This year, we is branching out a little bit. So we have two lectures that are taking place as well. One of them looks at the impact of the Anglo-Boer War on the Easter Uprising in Dublin. And the other is our second annual Andre Brunt Memorial Lecture. So those are taking place, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. We have, as you said, Akino Matosa's movie, Tell Me Sweet Something, as well as a documentary on Lion, Canned Lion, which is, is running. And Christopher Hope, who was the founding director of the festival, he and his son were involved in putting together an operatic tribute to Nat Nakasa um, in Carnegie Hall in New York. And he's bringing a, um, a shortened version of that. It's an extract from that. And, and he will be talking about both what they've done with that and answering questions from the audience and talking generally about Nat Nakasa. So we're trying to, to sort of broaden the range of, of, of what we're doing through different kinds of events. But the, the core of it still remains fiction, nonfiction, debates, conversations, one-on-one discussions along the normal lines that we've had in previous years. Now, Anne, you were the editor of Fair Lady and you owned the bookshop, the Cork Bay Bookshop. Being an editor, I'm going to ask you a question that you must loathe. And that is, that <laughs> yeah. is a cliched, the cliched question. What's your favourite event there? What, what are you really looking forward to seeing? Well, I'm very excited this year. We've got um, Hugh Masakela is coming for the second year in a row, and we timed it last year for his his memoir, which was then delayed, and it's now out. So he's going to be here talking about his his memoir of his life in New York and and blues and jazz. And we're pairing him in one event with a young writer who's also an amazing musician called Makane Toure. And Victor Lamini, who's one of our, our best interviewers, will be speaking to them about writing and about music and those kinds of subjects. But even more importantly, I think, he himself will be talking about his initiative, which is the Hugh Masakela Heritage Foundation, looking at African culture and how it's been lost as the world has globalized and grown and the importance of maintaining connections to to the traditions and the stories of the past that influence life in South Africa. It sounds, and I know it will be, and I can't wait to get there, absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure you're looking forward to putting your feet up again. Yes, well, I'm actually going travelling soon afterwards, so there won't be much feet up. But yes, it will be be good to rest for a little while. And just to give you the uh, website once again of the Franchuk Literary Festival, it's www.flf.co.za. And that's it then. Fire Music Radio Book Choice will be posted to our website too, www.fmr.co.za. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we are passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.